It's history. Let the word go forth from this time and place. The figures. Mr. Gorbachev. The events. Teared down this wall. The drama. This would have lighted up. The deep questions. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. I'm thinking about calling this episode of the show Musings or something. After all, that's what all the shows could and should probably be called, all of our episodes, because that's really what I do here or what I'm aiming to do anyway. You see, for those who don't know, I'm a student of history. I'm not a teacher of history. I'm a student of history. And I enjoy the weird angles and perennial questions and all the things that history brings up. I'm a lover of people. And people are what history, at least human history, is about, right? And all of our forms and permutations and cultures and challenges. And we're about, what, 15 shows into this Hardcore History podcast? And I've noticed that in some of the episodes, the tail's been wagging the dog a little bit. And the stories and historical events, which are supposed to be just the backdrop that allows me to bring up these little weird things I like to talk about, have become more important than the little weird things. And that was particularly apparent on the show we're doing today because I wanted to talk about some weird things that I've noticed from history and that historical writers have talked about since ancient Greece at least. And I chose as a backdrop for those musings the upheavals, the economic upheavals that happened between the First World War and the Second World War. Mainly the Great Depression, but a bunch of stuff around it. And I recorded a couple of versions of that show. And it got so caught up in the events of the Great Depression and the programs of the Great Depression and all that stuff that there was no room for the musings that was what I wanted to do the subject for in the first place. I let my producer Ben hear a couple of the test takes and he said, you just don't sound like you've got a passion for this. And I said, well, now that I'm talking about President Roosevelt's National Recovery Administration and the CCC and the Get Back to Work programs and all this, I don't. I'm not particularly enthused about that. He said, well, why don't you talk about what you're really interested in? I'm like, well, you can't, you can't talk about the Great Depression and not talk about the New Deal, and you can't talk about the Great Depression and not talk about this, and it was sort of a metaphor for what's happened in a lot of our programs, which is that we unconsciously become more like a teacher than a student. Some of this stuff we have to talk about in order for us to give context to the musings we want to talk about, but we've been doing it too much. And so on this program today, I hope you'll forgive any lack of organization. I hope you will forgive any lack of information, but there are things I wanted to talk about, and I'm just going to talk about them because these are the things that enthuse me. And if you don't get enough information about what it is that's the backdrop for these events, well, remember, I'm just a student, and I want you to go out and get 
more reading material on these subjects. So if we get you excited enough or interested enough about this stuff to do that, well, maybe that will make our incoherent ramblings worthwhile. Let me bring you into the design process a little and tell you how this started. I was thinking about my dad's generation before I came up with the subject for this show. Now, my dad was born in what is pretty much considered to be the worst year of the Great Depression. And you all know what the Great Depression is, right? The Great Depression is that period that is traditionally dated at the stock market crash of October 1929, which is a false date, but we'll play with it for a minute. And it goes in most countries till the Second World War pretty much brought everybody out of the doldrums economically. Now, there's all kinds of really neat and interesting things we could talk about with the Great Depression. The Great Depression itself is probably the least interesting angle. The most interesting angle for me, maybe, is what hard times do to people. That's what I meant when I said that history, human history, is really about people. And thank God experiments on human beings are illegal, or basically illegal, because that would be a terrible thing, but History itself has acted as a petri dish and has provided scientific data, if you will, observational data, and we call it history, where we can study how human beings react in given situations. And for as long as people have been writing history, I think, some historians, there's a vein that runs through some historians' commentary, have made the point that hard times somehow create better people. That obstacles that need to be overcome in people's existence end up creating more virtuous human beings. Maybe more virtuous is not the right word. But the reason the Great Depression came to mind was because there's evidence, observational evidence, that you can look at from that experiment that the gods of history conducted upon us of those terribly hard times, those that era of privation and uncertainty and stress. Of what that did to people. And we have labeled that generation as both scarred by that experience and somehow enhanced by it, haven't we? The people that lived through the Great Depression are the ones that our media, anyway, have dubbed the greatest generation. And if you go read books like Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, he spends a ton of time on the Great Depression and talks to a lot of people, all of whom felt like this was a defining event in creating who they are. And yet, it was a terrible time. So I wanted to kind of bring up this idea that's run, as I said, through a ton of histories that somehow bad times make better people. And there's sort of a reverse equation in that too, and that is, do good times make less virtuous people or softer people, I guess? You go read some of the people who were writing history in the 17th and 18th century, and that's a very popular theme that poverty and want and deprivation and privation make people hungrier and more nose to the grindstone and that societies that are hungrier overwhelm 
and overtake and overthrow societies that are weaker and softer and more rich and decadent. Edward Gibbon's The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire is famous for looking at Rome that way. That you could trace Roman, the rise and fall of Rome based on the virtues of the Romans. And that these virtues were influenced by tough times. When the Romans had it tough and they were struggling for their survival, they produced this human being that was capable of conquering the known world. Once Rome had all the money and didn't need to be so tough, didn't need to be so aggressive and fight simply to survive, you created a different kind of human being, a softer, less virtuous, less nose-to-the-grindstone kind of person. So do tough times somehow make better people? Well, this all came to me as a topic to talk about. Like I said, maybe you just call this show Musings. When I was ambushed into watching some television the other night. I never have time for this. There's always stuff to do. Uh, my wife was in watching some television, and I walked in, and she was flipping channels, and we landed on one of those channels that focuses all on celebrities and everything, and we sat there transfixed for about five minutes, unable to pull ourselves away. And all I could think about was this concept that somehow tough times make more virtuous people, and that easy, rich times make less virtuous people. And I thought, does that mean that we could cure some of this superficiality our culture is drowning in with some tough times? I played with that thought for a minute because that's a weird concept, isn't it? You need some tough times for everybody to turn out better because of it? Well, it's not that weird, though, because while I was doing my research on the Great Depression, which, by the way, I think we should stress, is interesting because it was recent. Most people's grandparents lived through it. My dad lived through it. It's such a profound difference from what we live with today, judging by what I was watching on television the other night. And yet, within living memory, we had Americans starving. Now, I'll tell you what's interesting, though. That same thinking, you know, that idea that hard times make better people, was present when the Great Depression started. The president was Herbert Hoover when the stock market crash happened, and he's taken a lot of the blame for the Great Depression, which, for those of you who don't know, is properly called the worst economic collapse in modern industrial history. There's nothing that compares to it. It is fascinating to study and look at and read about. And we'll get into what I consider to be the more interesting angles in a little bit. But one of Hoover's aides had this to say when the Great Depression started, that it would be a good thing, is what he was thinking. Quote, It, meaning these tough times, it will purge the rottenness out of the system. High costs of living will come down. People will work harder, live a more moral life. Values will be adjusted, and enterprising people will pick up the wrecks from less competent people. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it, when people are suffering as they were? And yet, as harsh as that sounds, looking back on it, that's kind of what happened, isn't it? This Herbert Hoover aide was saying that these hard times would somehow recalibrate people's priorities. That might be a way to put it. Because... When the stock market crash happened, it put an end to something that was called the Roaring Twenties here in the United States. 
a time remembered for high living, speakeasies, prohibition, movie stars. It was a good time. At least that's how people remember it. In the popular histories, anyway. That's the period that Herbert Hoover's aide was saying needed a little recalibration from, and sure enough, look at the 1930s, and we recalibrated, didn't we? That's what came to my mind when I was watching that entertainment program on television the other night is, wow, does this mean we need a little recalibration? Would Rome have benefited from a little recalibration during some of its more decadent years? Maybe extend its lifespan a little bit? And again, to me, that's not the kind of thing you could conduct an actual human experiment with. You can't take 100 kids and take 50 of them and raise them all wealthy and fulfill all their needs and take the other 50 and put them in a room and, and don't give them enough, make them struggle and scrap to survive, and then when they're adults, test them all out. Can't do that, thank God. But history's done it for us, hasn't it? I'm not sure we can draw conclusions as much as we can make observations. And the Great Depression was my choice as what we could observe to see how people were changed. Because there's no doubt that they were changed. Many of us grew up listening to the stories of what our um, grandfathers or fathers went through or mothers went through or grandmothers went through during that period. They're heartbreaking too, and yet some of the people will actually get a little smile or nostalgic when they relate one of those stories to you, which again shows that even the people who live through it notice something valuable about it, something memorable about it besides just privation that might back up these ideas of people like the vein of historians who think that hardship ends up making society stronger and people better. The tough times breed better individuals. What's that line? That which does not kill me only makes me stronger. Well, is history trying to show us that that's true? And if it is, what does that mean? Can you use knowledge like that the way you can use scientific findings? If we could somehow prove that harder times made for more virtuous individuals, would we be asking for some sort of a prescription? Would that make society's superficiality correctable? And if so, how in goodness gracious his name would you ever correct it? An imposed depression? Herbert Hoover's advisors seemed to think it'd be a good thing. But let's look at what it meant. Listen to those stories that uh, people who lived through the Depression will give you. My dad had one. He was a city kid from the Bronx, and he was poor as dirt, but so was everyone else. And the parents of all these kids, my dad's parents included, would send him down to the dumpsters behind the big fancy department stores. And at the time, those department stores sold individually wrapped pieces of fruit. They were wrapped in fancy paper and then when the fruit was sold the store would take the paper and just throw it away well all the kids would dumpster dive for that paper and then bring it home and that would be the toilet paper for the family because toilet paper was something you know when you can't afford food and clothing toilet paper's down on the list and my wife's grandfather was a rural kid in the depression and they had the same toilet paper luxury problem my dad's family did, but their answer on the farm was to use old corn cobs. 
now as uh, disgusting as that subject is, I relate it to you to suggest how different the people I was watching on that entertainment television program, the celebrities they were profiling, had they lived through a period where they were using corn cobs for toilet paper. It changes you, doesn't it? Maybe gets you to focus a little bit more on down-to-earth priorities. And that's something, too, that the people from the Depression seem to have. They seem to be pretty well-grounded in general, and they seem to be pretty unflappable. These are broad generalizations. Individual results may vary. But besides being also frugal, you can see the scars on the generation that lived through the Depression like you can read the tough years a tree went through when you look at the tree rings on the stump. My dad ate stuff that was in the back of his refrigerator that normally you would expect to see as part of a relief mission to some impoverished nation. But it was part of the scars of the Depression for him. That was from a time when his family could afford nothing better. And he developed a taste for what should be, you know, famine relief food. My stepfather couldn't look at macaroni and cheese because his family had to live on it for a month at a time sometimes. But these were average people. I mean, they were poor, but a lot of people were. That's the thing, too. Let's not pretend that the Great Depression or times like it meant that everybody was poor. It just basically raised the poverty line to include about half the population all of a sudden. Led to a lot of interesting things, too. I mean, one of the factors we were looking at in some of the earlier versions of this episode were the changes to our society because of what people went through during the Great Depression. It's certainly a hinge factor, isn't it? Hinge factor is one of those events that opens up the door to change, allows societies to make a hard right or a hard left-hand turn because the conditions are so tough that people become willing to do what they weren't willing to do in easier times. I thought that was one of the fascinating angles of this whole thing. And yet, the Depression was just the biggest, easiest targeted economic event you can point to between the First and Second World War. A lot of countries had other things going on that were just as severe, but had that same sort of a lab experiment with human beings going on. You know, do tough times make tougher human beings? And then sort of my back experiment, which is how tough times influence radicalism. Or how it germinates, I guess is a better way to say it. Like I said, this is a musing show, making it up as I go along. But think about how the tough economic times between the two world wars played such a role in the rise of the people who would end up starting those world wars. Do you have an Adolf Hitler without the tough times in Germany? Do you have a Benito Mussolini without the tough economic times in Italy? Perfect example, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler may never have come to power had Germany not had a traumatic experience with hyperinflation in the early 1920s. Hyperinflation, of course, is when the currency all of a sudden becomes near worthless. And in Germany, during the early 1920s, all of a sudden the mark, which was their currency, devalued so much that I believe it was more than a trillion marks to the dollar at one point. And there are stories, famous stories, of people having to take full wheelbarrows full of cash to the grocery store to buy the groceries. Or of burning tons of paper marks 
in the furnace for heat because it was cheaper than firewood and it was more worthless. Now think about that stress that that puts on a society. Imagine how much stress you'd be under if feeding your family for the day required a wheelbarrow full of dollars or euros or pounds. And then tomorrow, when you had to feed your family again, you had to come up with another wheelbarrow full. Well, that stress took its toll on German society. You had fighting in the streets in Germany between communists and rightists because of the economic stresses that that period helped heap on those people. And believe me, normally the Germans are the most orderly and the sorts of people that least like to have instability. It shows you how much stress they were collectively put under that that became their day-to-day -day lives for a while. You start looking for Hitler in Germany or someone like him, anyone promising to quell the instability that the economic problems were fueling. And the stuff that happened in the United States during the Great Depression never could have happened if we weren't under such stress. You look at the changes made to the United States economy and the government and the government's role in the economy during the 10, 12 years that we were going through the economic crisis of the Great Depression. And that's monumental stuff. By the way, the same is true in Canada, same is true in Australia, same is true in a lot of other countries. The reaction of those governments to the Great Depression is what started a lot of the social safety nets we have today. But there is no way you could get something like the Social Security program that is active in America right now started if we weren't living through such terrible times. It was those terrible times that opened the door to ideas like Social Security because the people were going to rise up and take pitchforks and torches to the White House if they didn't get something like that. People were demanding action because they were suffering. Suffering has a way of lighting a fire under historical events, doesn't it? Just think about how history becomes different if you never have a Great Depression. Think about that. Or you never have the hyperinflation in Germany. If things are more stable, you probably, and we're theorizing here, but you probably don't have that rise in radicalism that culminated in the Second World War. People are much less likely to listen to radical visions if they've got full bellies and prospects for their kids. The economic calamity of the Great Depression opened the door to fascism, Nazism. In the United States, all kinds of things could have happened. I'll give you one example. There was supposedly, allegedly might be a better word, a coup plot against Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the early days of his administration. According to General Smedley Butler, who was a Marine Corps hero, and this is all from congressional testimony and an investigation by Congress after the fact, Smedley Butler claimed to have been approached by people who were supposed to be representing important American industrialists. And these industrialists were so worried that the American people had been radicalized by the Great Depression and were ready to vote for what they saw as communistic programs in reaction to the problems they faced, that they wanted someone to take over the White House the same way Mussolini had marched on Rome and the same way Hitler was consolidating his power in Germany. The story goes like this. Smedley Butler says that the, these intermediaries contacted him, and what they wanted him to do was to go out and recruit a half million veterans, 
which everyone seems pretty sure he was capable of doing, and then march on the White House, demanding that Roosevelt have an assistant president, and that was going to be Smedley Butler. And then Smedley Butler was going to simply dictate to Roosevelt what pronouncements to make, and if Roosevelt went along with the plan, he could stay president. If he didn't, the plotters said that the plan was that Roosevelt would be eased out of the White House for health reasons, and Smedley Butler would take over. Now, the reason we even know about this is Smedley Butler, being the super patriot he was, instantly went to the authorities. They had a congressional investigation, and what basically happened is that they could never figure out whether the middlemen people were on the level. They believed Smedley Butler. The uh, people that the intermediary said was behind the coup, he named people like the DuPont family, the J.P. Morgan interests, and people like that. They all denied to high heaven that they were involved in anything like this. But Congress couldn't figure out if that was true or if the middlemen were simply extorting those industrialists or trying to extort people. Playing both sides against the middle was the term that they used at the time. And that's where they left it. But it's interesting to theorize how bad the times must have been for anyone to either contemplate a coup, overthrowing the American form of government, or for times to be so tough that when people heard stories about plots to overthrow the government, they didn't immediately dismiss them. Ah, you're crazy. Who'd ever do that? I don't know. Times are pretty tough. So that's just one of the stories that comes out of the Great Depression and what the stress of those economic times may have triggered. Huey Long is another. For those who don't know, Huey Long is one of the most fascinating American politicians you can ever look at. And there are not a lot of people like him. He was a Louisiana politician who held several offices and a couple at the same time. It wasn't very kosher to do. But there was no one in Louisiana politics at the time as powerful as this guy. He was known as the Kingfish. And to outsiders, he always gave the impression of one of these insider southern wheeler-dealer politicians who was a little bit con artist, a little bit scammer, and a populist at heart. Populists, uh, politicians are the ones that talk about the big bad interests and the elitists and holding the people down and they appeal to the masses and the need to right the wrongs of the corporate bosses and the monopolists and all that kind of stuff. And Long had this message and he also had programs that he'd put together. He had one called the Share Our Wealth Program. And if you go and read that, that's a really interesting platform to come out of Depression-era America. And it sure as heck must have looked communistic to the people of the day. If you saw Huey Long promoting the Share Our Wealth program, and you were one of these wealthy industrialists, you may well have tried to get Smedley Butler to march on Washington. Which is another fascinating thing from these economic times is, I was also going to call this show Desperate Times, Desperate Measures, because of that idea that people who normally just want to have a nice, happy, quiet life become radicalized by hard times. But also because the Great Depression and that era started to shake people's confidence in capitalism, a lot of people thought and wrote at the time that what people were seeing in the midst of the Great Depression was the death throes of capitalism and that capitalism was going to be replaced by one of two ideologies. Rising from the ashes was either going to be communism which is what Marx predicted, right? That it was going to rise from the ashes of capitalism. Or this new ideology, fascism, that was all the rage in Europe. And a lot of people felt like they were 
being forced to make a choice, that the times were so tough economically that in some places like Germany, you had people dying in the streets and rioting, that something had to take over from what was obviously a dying system, laissez-faire liberal democracies and capitalism and all that, that people started saying, well, okay, if I can't choose democracy, I'm either going to choose communism or fascism. So people who normally wouldn't think that extreme at all would end up choosing an extreme ideology in preference to another extreme ideology. And there were a lot of folks, by the way, who thought that the Spanish Civil War, which broke out in the 1930s in Spain, obviously, was simply a guns, bullets, and airplane version of a struggle that had been going on underground anyway between who gets to be the successor to capitalism. They may have been having some minor riots in the streets of Germany over who got that plum position. But in Spain, there was open warfare over it. And don't think the major backers of those ideologies didn't know it. The Germans and the Italians threw all sorts of money and weaponry to one side in that war, the fascist side. And the Bolsheviks and Soviets threw money and resources to the other side, backing the communists and the socialists. Another fascinating little angle that I wasn't having time to get through when I was explaining all of the ins and outs of the Great Depression and the recovery programs and all that, when really what I wanted to talk about was, isn't it amazing that if you hadn't had a Great Depression at all, you might not have fascism at all? Communism, which for a long time seemed to live on the idea that it was the alternative to the suffering that you were seeing in the decadent capitalist societies, which is the way it was put, might not have been able to portray themselves as better than the other choice had there not been such a obvious contrast on how bad capitalism was serving people in the 1930s. Definitely not capitalism's signature moment in terms of advertising itself to the rest of the world. Huey Long, though, was just one of the American politicians uh, and figures that arose and seemed to capitalize or speak to, depending on your point of view, the feelings of Americans who started to feel hopeless and who started to feel beaten down by the hard times. And see, this is what's interesting to me when we get back to the idea that the Depression and the hard economic times is like a laboratory trying to confirm this hypothesis that hard times make more virtuous and better people. Because when you read the accounts of what people were going through, they're so heartbreaking and so devastating for the people actually going through them that it makes it hard to see how they're benefiting. Let me give you an example. One of the best books you can read to get a sort of a ground-level view of how the Great Depression was for some of the people who lived through it is to go read John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. And of course, he follows a family of migrant farm laborers across the country and gives you a window into their world. Now, that's a fictional story. But a few years before the publication of The Grapes of Wrath, the author John Steinbeck wrote a newspaper account of some of the things he'd seen in some of these migrant camps in the United States. And these camps, by the way, were full of people that were coming west from the Dust Bowl and the whole middle farming area around the United States and up in Canada too, and simply were wiped out. They were starving, they were dirt poor, and they would 
try to find jobs picking fruit and whatnot. There were so many of them, there were never enough jobs. So Steinbeck writes about the conditions he saw at one of these camps. And bear in mind, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in camps like this, just in the U.S. alone. This was written um, in the middle 1930s. Quote, The squatters' camps are located all over California. Let us see what a typical one is like. It is located on the banks of a river, near an irrigation ditch, or on a side road where a spring of water is available. From a distance it looks like a city dump, and well it may, for the city dumps are the sources for the material of which it is built. You can see a litter of dirty rags and scrap iron, of houses built of weeds, of flattened cans, or of paper. It is only on close approach that it can be seen that these are homes. Here is a house, he writes, built by a family who have tried to maintain a neatness. The house is about 10 feet by 10 feet, and it is built completely of corrugated paper. The roof is peaked, the walls are tacked to a wooden frame. The dirt floor is swept clean, and along the irrigation ditch, or in the muddy river, the wife of the family scrubs clothes without soap and tries to rinse out the mud in muddy water. The spirit of this family, he writes, is not quite broken. For the children, three of them, still have clothes, and the family possesses three old quilts and a soggy, lumpy mattress. But the money so needed for food cannot be used for soap, nor for clothes. With the first rain, the carefully built house will slop down into a brown, pulpy mush. In a few months, the clothes will fray off the children's bodies, while the lack of nourishing food will subject the whole family to pneumonia when the first cold comes. Five years ago, he writes, this family had 50 acres of land and $1,000 in the bank. The wife belonged to a sewing circle, and the man was a member of the Grange. They raised chickens, pigs, pigeons, and vegetables, and fruit for their own use, and their land produced the tall corn of the Middle West. Now they have nothing. The piece continues talking about children dying in these camps and parents who have the dull, paralyzing stare, he says, of people whose minds have simply shut down because of too much pain and too much fear and too much sorrow. And that's the part of this whole experiment, asking whether or not tough times make more virtuous people, that I just can't get past because I'm not sure I see any benefit to that. Herbert Hoover's advisor talked about how this would be a recalibrating force that made things better. How does that make things better? I guess it puts the important things in life in perspective a little bit more. Maybe it makes some of the superficial things we live with every day in our society into more stark relief, maybe. Again, maybe tough times add perspective. Maybe that's the lesson. Because, see folks, the, the Great Depression is a common thing in history. The most common thing is for circumstances to change, right? The only historical certainty is change. Isn't that the saying? Well, one of the other thoughts that came to me when I was trying to figure out a way to do this topic was to try to break through to people on the concept of change. We're living in a remarkably wealthy time right now. If this were the stock market and history timelines read like the stock market, we're at all-time highs at the moment, which might account for some of the things 
we see around us, the superficiality, the trappings that you see in more wealthy societies throughout history. But what happens when you've got a stock market riding at all-time highs for a long time? Well, one of two things happens. If you're a pessimist, or I would say a realist, you realize that eventually that market has to correct itself, recalibrate itself, maybe you'd say. And if you're an optimist, you might say that everything is different than it used to be, and things will never go down again. You'll have slight variations from the norm, but this new market high is the new norm. Don't worry, there'll never be another depression. And to me, that's like tempting the gods of history. That's a saying they have, by the way, about like when the people named the Titanic the unsinkable liner. They were saying that that was like thumbing your nose at the gods of history and just asking for trouble. Well, I think when people suggest that change, massive change, unexpected massive change won't happen anymore or won't happen in certain realms like the economy, I think that's like thumbing your nose at the gods of history. Systems break down, and we have a system that's a heck of a lot more complicated than the one that broke down when the Great Depression happened. And yet, when I was doing my research for this show, I was reading all these economists and historians and historical economists writing about the Great Depression with an air of superiority and sort of a haughty attitude. You could feel it dripping off the pages. It was sort of this mindset that our ancestors were somehow dumb. And look at the stupid, idiotic, moronic mistakes that they made running the economy back then and why any college graduate of a lower division economics course would know to avoid some of those mistakes. The fat cats running the economy back in the days before the Depression made. Then you'll hear them talk about some of the responses that were made early on during the crisis. Well, nowadays we'd shut down that problem early on. The disaster that you saw in the 1930s was simply a result of stupid mismanagement by people who were less than sophisticated, economically speaking. I'm putting words into everyone's mouth, but I remember reading the pieces and thinking that they were giving very little credit to the people of the day. Well, then one of the things I was reading, though, was by a guy named Robert Samuelson. He's an economic writer who I like a lot. And he wrote a whole piece on the Great Depression, and the last paragraph really struck me because basically he was pointing out the point that I wanted to make, which is if you think this can't happen again because we're so much smarter and so much more sophisticated, think again. Let me read you the last paragraph of Robert Samuelson's piece. He says, quote, It is commonly said that another depression will never occur. This is probably true as long as another depression means a crude repetition of the 30s. However, crises can come in unfamiliar forms. The basic lesson from the Great Depression is that governments cannot permit massive collapses of banks or spending. The deeper lesson is that there are times when the world changes so much and events move so rapidly that even the well-informed do not know how to respond. This is the story of the Depression. Now it seems preventable. Then it was baffling. World War I made restoration of the pre-war economic system difficult, maybe impossible. But that's what world leaders attempted because it was all that they knew, and it had worked. Only its collapse convinced them to try something different. Old ideas were overtaken and overwhelmed. It has happened before. It can happen again. End quote. Samuelson 
in my mind, is sort of taking the Murphy's Law approach to history. But I'm a Murphy's Law approach to history guy myself. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That's Murphy's Law, right? And I would add that the chances of something going wrong seem to be proportional to how sure you were that they wouldn't go wrong. It's that thumbing your nose at the gods of history principle. The more you think you are insulated from the cycles of history, the more likely it is you're going to get smacked by them. And depending on your belief system, maybe getting smacked by the gods of history in a case like this might have some unintended positive consequences. Remember, the Great Depression in my mind was like a laboratory experiment. How would the peoples of the world react to this crushing stress of this economic crisis? Well, be interesting, wouldn't it, if you could take three steps back and not be horribly involved in the process to see how it would alter things today again. You might get Herbert Hoover's advisor's recalibration of our priorities. We might be able to sweep away a lot of the superficiality that seems to clog up the arteries of Western culture right now. At the same time, crises like the Great Depression or the hyperinflation that Germany had to put up with in the early 1920s are very unpredictable. Once you open that Pandora's box, you don't know what's going to happen. And you could end up with a, another version of the greatest generation and all of their values and priorities that we admire so much. Or you could end up with a stressed, panicking, desperate population voting for policies and people and programs and prescriptions that they never would have voted for in more rational, less stressful, more prosperous times. History is a crapshoot. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. Go to dancarlin.com for information on how to donate to the show. Don't forget to vote for Hardcore History on podcastalley.com.